0: What's happening, everybody? And welcome to another thought-provoking episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, coming at you from Brooklyn, New York, here on this beautiful October day. The fall is upon us, and the days are getting shorter, and the nights are getting longer. And while under normal circumstances, that's my natural habitat, uh, we are we're starting to return to our our hibernations as the Our COVID pandemic carries on, and we find new ways to adjust to the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, Be sure to check out all of the live streams that are happening these days. I'm really happy to see all the music that is being made, all the recordings being released, and the live stream performances being put on around New York and across the world. Be sure to check them out and, you know, spread the word to your friends, and, uh, Support the musicians in any way that you can. You know, if they've got a tip bucket online, a digital tip bucket, or if they've got, uh, let's say, ticketed performances, check them out, you know, because we're all going through this together. And uh, in my world, the music is what keeps me going day to day. And I think it's great if we can help those musicians out and spread the word and check out their performances, even if we can't be there in real life for another couple of months or so. Speaking of real life, this Saturday, October 24th at 6 p.m., Sarah McDonald's New York Chill Harmonic will be performing in real life outdoors at the Culture Lab LIC in Long Island City, Queens. So it's been a while since you've seen a live performance. Go check them out. It's a huge band. It's it's sort of a blending of jazz and uh, prog rock and pop and uh, always a wild hang. So be sure to check that out if you're in the Long Island City area and you want to see some music in real life, hear some music. In other announcements, baritone saxophonist Andy Gutowskis has got a new album about to come out on October 30th, entitled Look Out on Outside In Records. Uh, Andy Gutowskis is an amazing baritone saxophonist and a great guy to boot. Be sure to check out his album. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it yet because it hasn't come out yet, but I'm real excited. I've been happy to see all the music that's been coming out lately. Uh, people still rele- releasing albums, releasing music, and this is the perfect time to hunker down and uh, check out some new music. All right, well, we've got a great show for you today. I'm really excited to introduce my guest and get on to our really fascinating conversation. We had a lot of fun, but before we get started, I wanted to do something a little different today and take a little a little trip into the philosophical realms as a preface to today's show. Uh, when I started this show back in January, February, March, before everything locked down, I decided to call it Jazztopia because I felt like the subjects we would discuss and the people that we would be talking to would fall into the expansive umbrella of music that might be loosely identified as jazz. And I thought that the subjects that we would talk about would be most interesting to those avid listeners of jazz music and, let's say, the peripheral styles. Now, way back in episode six, my mission statement, I mentioned that I was not particularly interested in the debate over what constitutes jazz or in defining the differences in the genres and all this other stuff. I think that more often than not, the names of the genres and what we call things has more to do with uh, marketing people and critics than it does with the musicians themselves. And I would just be as soon I would be as content to just call everything music or perhaps distinguish between different styles of music with characteristics of that music rather than particular titles. However, I've been thinking about it recently, and I think I'm probably going to find myself, you know, examining this question more and more as we go, and I think that there are linguistic reasons to be able to define our terms and to be able to distinguish between different concepts. Uh, I think if you probably... Studied the field of linguistics. You could see that as human beings, it's a big benefit for us to be able to name certain things and decide what one thing is versus another. If we're talking about chairs, if I say chair, you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about chairs. It creates a situation in which we can sort of categorize things and try to make sense of the world around us, even if that may sometimes lead to confusion and disagreement. Starting in the late 1950s, Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, Sun Ra, and others introduced the world to what might be called free jazz. To me, free jazz is very much a part of the jazz tradition, but with a less stringent approach to form, harmony, timbre, and other things like that. Growing up in Boston, free jazz is a big part of the jazz scene at large, and uh, you can distinguish it in many regards because you're dealing with the style, you're dealing with Oftentimes it'll be swing, or it'll be certain traditional instruments, or it'll be components that you'd regularly find in, you know, whatever you'd call the greater jazz umbrella, but with a little bit more flexibility in terms of harmony and various other things like that. However, uh, over the years into the 60s and 70s, 80s, etc., this approach that that at the time might have been called, you know, free jazz or the new thing, uh, evolved into an approach to playing that maintains the improvisational emphasis of jazz, but strays pretty far stylistically from what might be traditionally called jazz. Boy, we're saying that a lot. We're going to say a lot of jazz. (laughs) This is going to get a little wild. That's okay. Now, I prefer personally to think of uh, these approaches, and to some degree, all music as being a part of the same overall concept, and I don't know how useful it is for me personally to really distinguish between these different styles of music. Furthermore, a lot of this stuff is pretty hard to distinguish, really. I mean, the difference between, I would say, some of, say you take the the extremely wide body of work of somebody like Anthony Braxton, uh, some of his music, I think you could say definitively, that's in the jazz realm, that's free jazz, and other things you may say, well, I don't know if that's exactly stylistically in, in line with that, but what is it? Can you draw a line there? I personally cannot draw a line there. Uh, now, the finest book that I've read on this, on this subject, and on the subject of uh Whatever we're going to call this music, this is the the crux of the the controversy here uh, the best the best book on this is by my former teacher Joe Morris, guitarist Joe Morris and it's entitled Perpetual Frontier: The Properties of Free Music. And Joe has done what many have 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 never dared to do, which is to discuss the minutiae of what the varying techniques are involved in what he calls free music now because we're going to get into this later on in this program i wanted to give i wanted to give you a couple of quotes from the book that i think may shed some light on the my own my own conflicts with this with this idea of what what we call this music on page 1 of his book joe says the biggest challenge is to describe non-harmonic music without destroying its most unique attribute in the process the one that allows it to remain just beyond our grasp i like that a lot Is it worth it to try to define these terms? Is it worth it to try to name the music? Or does trying to define a style of music only create artificial limitations? Later in the chapter, Joe says, Many attempts have been made to name music that drew inspiration from jazz, but was not based on the harmonic structure that typically defines the dominant technique of jazz. Free jazz, new thing, creative music, great black music, free improvisation, etc., all of these do clarify different aesthetics and the use of technically different material, but over time they have blended together. Now, what Joe proposes is that we call that music free music. He has sort of used that as the umbrella term, which encompasses a whole lot of different possibilities. I mean, the difference between Cecil Taylor's music and unit structures and Anthony Braxton's, uh, Anthony Braxton's approach and Ornette Coleman's Har all these things are starkly different, but uh, whatever it is that, let's say, unifies that as a style, Joe puts under the category of free music. Now, there's another really interesting definition here that I'd like to add because I think it speaks to the point and it takes away the ambiguity that the word free puts into the naming of the style. Let's see. So here, is, here goes. I hope everybody's with me here. Are we still with me? Everybody entertained? Are you fully entertained? All right, we'll try to keep this short. Here we go. Free music is not music that is free of deliberate content or structure. It is music that exists because the artists who make it are compelled to remain free to render their music in any fashion they feel is worthwhile, and they are free to set the criteria for their music and to determine whether or not they meet that criteria. Now, I think this is a really great definition uh, because it allows for the, uh, let's say, some, some broad categorization of a very diverse field of music without being exclusive in any particular way. Some music that Joe would refer to as free music may not be improvised at all. Or as we talk about in the upcoming conversation, uh, you may have something like Butch Morris's Conduction, which is very involved in uh, a certain kind of improvisation without it being overtly free, or let's say without structure or without form or without rules or or whatever, what have you. Uh, So... I'm going to say, I, we covered this in the conversation coming up, and I was trying to figure out exactly what we could call it. Well, How do we communicate about this particular style of music as distinguished from other styles? And I don't think it's bad to have an idea of what you're talking about, and to ha- be able to you know, speak about, all right, wh- what is the what is the style that we're talking about? But I, I am conscious of trying not to limit our understanding of the music or to box things into categories unnecessarily or to be over-academic about it. I find myself always in battle with myself, uh, you know, constantly arguing with myself, trying to figure out the best way, the best perspective, the best paradigm from which to look at this music that we're dealing with. And I think at this point, we're just getting a little too academic about it anyway. So let's get to the conversation. Wait, before we go, here's the thing. So if you want to check out more about this music, if you're listening to this and you're like a, you're like a hardcore swing guy or something, you really like, uh, you know, hard bop or something, and you never really delved into free music, shame on you. Get on it. Get on it. There's so much good music out there. But you can check out, if you want to get a little bit more of an idea about some of the techniques involved, Joe Morris's Perpetual Frontier, The Properties of Free Music. I've read it a bunch of times, and it's really fascinating, the approach to uh, all these different, you know, the way the music is created. Uh, there's also a book that was recommended to be by my friend Colin Hinton, entitled A Listener's Guide to Free Improvisation by John Corbett. That's a kind of an interesting little book. Uh, it's a pretty short read. I don't know if we, if the Free Improvisation title would be Controversial, but who cares? Check it out. Interesting stuff. All right, without further ado, I am excited to introduce uh, my guest this week, the great cornetist Stephen Haynes. Stephen Haynes is a multifaceted cornetist, improvising composer, arts advocate, and educator. He has worked with George Russell, Butch Morris, Bill Dixon, Leroy Jenkins, Cecil Taylor, and many others, and continues to perform with his group Knuckleball and in a series of ever-changing ensembles throughout New England and New York. I've had the privilege of getting to see Stephen in his element many times, and it's always an exciting performance, and uh, nothing you've ever heard before. Always new, always exciting. Stephen kindly invited me to his backyard in Connecticut where we were able to do a little socially distanced conversation. Uh, it was great to talk to him, man. We had a lot of fun. Uh, we had It was really a fascinating conversation. Stephen has... Um, a really interesting experience in the world of whatever you want to call it, whatever this music is, and jazz, and in free music, in his in the world of his own imagination, and uh, it was it was really interesting to get to hear about his approach and his history in the music. We discussed Stephen's teacher and mentor, Bill Dixon, the uh, meaning of freedom and the nature of free music, Butch Morris's conduction techniques and the importance of organizing and curating environments for new music. We started the conversation off talking about Bill Dixon's box set of solo trumpet improvisations entitled Odyssey, and we got on to talking about the philosophy of the music and uh, a whole lot of other stuff. I had a blast, and I know you will too. So without further ado, here he is, Stephen Haynes. Did he release those, those records?
1: You mean the, this, the box set or the CD? Yeah, he rather? produced it himself. He had the box. He put the cover on. He did, I mean, he did everything DIY. There are boxes of all these components sitting up in his house. Then he would stamp them. Then he would sign them. And um, his widow has, because it was off the market for a while, has sold some chunks of that to other people, and you can you can find it now. And like you would enjoy it. I mean, it's really. The idea of seven CDs of solo trumpet is some other shit. Nobody's yeah. ever done that. Yeah. And no one ever could really would never think of doing it. It could never sustain it. In what regard? What do you mean? Show me someone that can give me even one CD of solo trumpet that doesn't bore me after the first two cuts.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Well that has to be. And part he's of the... not
1: doing a million different things. He's just. It's this lyric, a, many, a lot of it's... For people to think of him as being this, you know, outcat, right? Mm-hmm. The certain period that he was working on, he was working on a certain approach to line and stuff, as well as all this other stuff. But the solo pieces, a lot of them are kind of lyrical meditations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. So, even more so in that area, without any gimmicks, without any effects, without an extended technique, to play piece after piece after piece that for each individual piece had a logic as a, as, a piece, as a piece of music from beginning to end throughout, and that could stand alone and be fine, and to do one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. After the other. And if you approach it as a single work of art, to then experience maybe, how do you listen to it? Do you listen to the whole thing? Do you listen to it in sections? But the work holds up. And I, and I, I can't really imagine anybody else that could do what he did at all. Sure. So I mean, it's not to say that there aren't people that could you know, play that haven't. There are people that have done solo work. There are people doing solo work now. Yeah. Some of them are more interesting than others. Um, most of them are all different from each other. Um, And to have a piece of work that you would be willing to listen to more than once. Yeah. You know, I occasionally buy, go through these spurts where I'll buy a half dozen new releases by people. Years ago, it used to be because I read the trade magazines. Now I don't read anything. I don't read any jazz magazines. I don't read any reviews. Sure. But something comes, pops up that comes to my attention. Somebody tells me about something. Or now, because I'm active with social media, I might see something in somebody's Instagram feed or something. Mm-hmm. And because the person is interesting to me, I might say, OK, well, let me look at that. Nine out of 10 times, I can barely make it through the, the CD. And if I go through it, and it's kind of interesting, I'm surely not going to listen to it more than once. Okay. I'm just not. Sure. Now, why? What is it about, what do you listen for in recordings?
0: Or what are you looking for? What is it that grabs your attention or would make you listen to it? That's kind of, a, I guess, maybe a
1: broad question, but it's... it's No, it's a good question. I'm not sure I've ever thought about it. Well, I'd like to be surprised. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd like to have something capture my attention. Now, maybe it's subjective and it's just my attention. But we're at this point in the music where so many things have been done. All these different forms and conventions were set up and then were exploded in the music. It's difficult, for example, in the music to use the word innovator anymore. Whereas before, we could have said that about, uh, that about Bird, because at a point, there was Charlie Parker, and you couldn't ignore what he did. Sure. You can go back before, if we're talking about driving in terms of soloist and look at uh, Louis Armstrong and his work, arguably that went across multiple generations,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you could not ignore what he did. Certainly, playing the instrument that you and I play, you, you better not ignore what right. he did. Right, sure. Yeah, Miles yeah. is the same way. Mm-hmm dizzy to a certain extent with certain very specific things. I'm not saying that I'm looking to be to find an innovator or someone who's gonna take the top of my head off because that would be unrealistic and it would never happen anyway.
0: Sure. But I, I often find myself now I've listened to so much music from so many different realms that I'm always looking for that 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 thing that surprised me when I first listened to Bitches Brew or when I first listened to when I first heard Shape of Jazz to Come or when I first heard well also in those
1: records like I was very young when those things were coming out okay so let's take Miles right so with Miles you were waiting on pins and needles for the next release you were anticipating the next release did it always measure up maybe not but same thing was true with Marvin Gaye. I mean, I remember being in Philly in the winter, waiting for uh, his new record to come out and then running to the store and getting the thing and having to listen to it and listen to it over again. It's different now because of how the music is produced. Also, I think in fairness to other people, I'm sure there's amazing music that I never hear. And more and more, and part of this is, is pandemic related I don't listen to a lot of music. And so I have to be selective when I am listening. Am I listening more to myself? I'd like to think that I am. Maybe, you know. So if I'm buying new things often, it's because I'm curious about somebody who's younger than me on my same instrument. Or I'm curious about somebody who's writing for more than six or seven people and thinks orchestrally. Okay. So I'll buy a big band album or an orchestra record wondering, okay, what have you got? Partly because I love playing that music. Partly because that affection has always been coupled with finding people who were orchestra leaders and composers and working directly with those people, Mm -hmm. as opposed to you're going to call me up and give me a gig sitting in the section. So when I work with orchestras, I typically work with people who are creating their own music for orchestra. And sure. I'm interested in learning how they approach doing that. If it's conducted improvisation, what can I learn from that? Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I threaten to do it myself, but we'll see what happens. Sure. You know? But I've certainly been... If, if that's what I'm doing, I've been doing a lot of studying.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. That's a really interesting realm, too, the, the
0: world of conducted large ensemble sort of where free music and a larger orchestral kind of approach meets. You worked with uh, Butch Morris,
1: right? I did, I did.
0: What was his, I wonder if you could summarize what his approach to leading that size of an ensemble was, or, or what the mindset is sitting in a section where you're working with his, the conduction approach and kind of a free improvisation on that size.
1: I don't think it was anything free about Butch's music at all okay I think that um, when you when you work with with Butch you as an improviser or musician are are literally an instrument that he's using and I mean very literally okay first of all to work with him if you were really really doing the work it demanded a lot more from you than a lot of other people's work would because he had his own system. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You really had to understand what his all the symbols meant, the actions that they drove. There was a lot of things you had to remember. And then if you knew all those things and were in, as as Bill Dixon would have said, you were really in the room, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you were present. he would then build language sets using the memory of sections or individual musicians as an engine for generating language. So he had a cue for uh, uh, memory, which is like a repeat thing. He would, you'd be playing, he might indicate the beginning of where you were playing, almost like cutting a piece of tape,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then indicate the end part. And not only were you supposed to be paying attention to it, but everybody else in the ensemble should have been paying attention to what he just grabbed and he might call that memory one or memory two. He may not come back to memory one right away, but at some point he will come back to memory one and expect everybody to remember memory one. So the rigor of the conduction system and working with, with, uh, with Butch on that particularly, I think, in the last 10 years of his life, as he got, it took him a long time to to develop a way of getting what he wanted to get.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It didn't come quickly. I mean, I worked with him early in, in, in New York, not as early as some, and some of what he was trying to do worked and some of it didn't. Um, But later in life, I was able to work with him a couple of times. Uh, We would do, in font, we would do these trumpet, uh, we call it Trumpet Nation. We would would be nothing but trumpets. Mm -hmm. And he would conduct those. We did a couple of those. I did. There were more than two. Um, It was fantastic. Sure. Fantastic. Um, And, I mean, to get off topic, people also forget that Butch was a cornet player. Sure. And I more than once went over to his house and sat and, and had nothing but a conversation about the cornet. Mm-hmm. Nothing about conduction at all. And people forget his voice as an instrumentalist. Sure. Almost completely. Yeah. So. Um, and that was
0: always going to inform what it is that he's doing. Having a, you know, the reflection of his own, whatever, instrumental experience on...
1: Yeah, he will tell you himself that... that, that what he created was only possible with him in, in, in front of everybody and, 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 and demand, demanding because it wasn't asking, it was really demanding your attention, your focus, your complete presence in what he was doing. I think the rigor of what he was doing was was really something. sure. And there were some people that he used frequently over time who were deeper into his, if you could call it repertoire or his methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. It's probably a rambling no, response. No, no. Well,
0: it's an interesting point in particular. Do you know, are you familiar with the, uh, Walter Thompson's uh, sound painting? I worked approach? with
1: Walter when I first came to New York. Uh, Will Connell and I and Herb Robertson were in those bands. Mm-hmm. That would have been the early 80s over at Greenwich, Greenwich House Music School. Sure. Yeah, I worked with, with Walter, although that was early on. And at that at that time, Walter's stuff, there was more writing and less conducting. Okay. There was a certain amount of conducting, but there was also a bunch of riding. Mm-hmm. So I haven't followed the evolution, the formalization and codification of the sound painting. I'm aware of it. I'm certainly aware of Walter's work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's developed his own school of that. and He certifies people, and there's a worldwide community of people that deal with that. But I haven't actively followed Walter, although it's funny. In the last year or so, I've reached out to him and sent him a couple of notes because it has been a long time.
0: Hmm. So what I was thinking about is is the difference between, like, that's a um, specific language that he's using with that stuff. I've had the opportunity to work with him twice, I think, in various contexts. But it still is, it's it's free improvisation insofar as the musicians are creating the source material. But, but Walter's always in control. Right. So I guess it's where that line is. But I think it's interesting where you'd say, all right, this is still improvised music, but to what degree does the conductor have control?
1: Yeah, but we should stop using the word free because free is like, free doesn't even mean anything anymore. Okay. I mean, I really think it's one of those words that's been so abused and overused and misused that you could ask 10 different people what free improvisation means or free anything means mm-hmm. other than a free, you know, a free free loaf of bread sure. you know? <laughs> right. uh, and you're not going to get anything that approaches the same answer mm-hmm. and I think because I've spent years doing what my colleague Joe Morris calls free music mm-hmm. um, we ran a series together here in Hartford for six years we do 10 events a year so I had the chance to really immerse myself in working alongside him and learning from that much contact with Joe, which I'm, I'll am i always be grateful for. Um, I found that that music, if you really enter it fully, was more difficult and demanding and rigorous than anything that I've ever done in my life. And I've done all different kinds of music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I was trained early on to be able, you could hang me upside down and blindfold me, I could read anything. That's the way I was trained. Sure. I mean... But there's a big understanding in this music, whatever this music is, right? Um, Around the word, the use of the word and the meaning of the word free, play free. It's free. Really, what does that mean exactly? Sure. Does it mean there are no rules? Because in my experience, there are always rules. You might not know what the rules are. You might be ignoring the rules. But Bill Dixon would often say that in any situation, there's always a leader. And whether you said it or not, there will become a de facto leader in an ensemble setting and in a collective setting because that was, well, that's the way he thought about it.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Now, do you think that means that there's a leader in the group or the time or whatever is going on at the time, or does that change can that be a a changing leader depending on what's happening in the music at any given time?
1: I think it can change. It depends on who's doing the work. I mean, I I had a brief conversation with Evan Parker when he was here with Joe and me, Mm -hmm. and he talked about playing in an ensemble, and he talked about the difference in how much he would play and how much he would respond having to do with how generous the other players were. That was the language that he used. Okay. How generous they were. How much you can open that any way you want, really, you know. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think one person's ceiling is another person's floor. You know? <laughs> it's also, it really is relative. I think, and, and this, is, this is the, funny is probably the wrong word, but this is where what we're doing reminds me of someone like Ellington in the sense that I know that we're in the tradition because I know that playing in a free music approach it's, it's probably as or more important in the methodology is who you choose to do the work with,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who you're going to sit with, and who you're going to enter that space with, right? Sure. I don't think that's that, that's that different than Ellington's approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, articulated differently, going through different parameters, but in a way, quintessentially... Uh, well, no, I don't want to say that that's the, that's the wrong generalization. But um, I think it's very dependent on, on other people. Sure. I mean, it's one of the reasons we like doing this music. Cause I don't know about you, but for me, one of the reasons that I will always love playing in an orchestra where I almost never make any money and where occasionally it's even really a pain in the ass. Is because it has a community function. Mm-hmm. So I love sitting section because there may be a cluster of other brass players that I only see when I play in that orchestra. And I see intervalically across a year or across years every time we're sure. fortunate enough to work. Right. That's a great feeling. Oh yeah. I mean, I know you know about that.
0: Oh yeah. And this is that's one of the things that in the last couple of months has been. I've missed the most is is that I mean it's of course it's it, it pervades everything but
1: I've started talking to some people that I never talked to before on zoom because at least I can see their face sure and I might say well wait a minute what are you playing yeah no play that for me uh, well you might want you know <laughs> change your mouthpiece or whatever or mm-hmm. like what do you I mean just you know because we're all thirsty for that direct right. exchange with other people mm-hmm. so sure um,
0: do you when you talk about when you talk about orchestras, are you talking about sort of traditional orchestral music? Do you still play whatever we want to call it, classical music, or no. do you find yourself in a world of in your own world now? Is it mostly groups of? Well, now we've got to figure out what the, what the language is. Well, so no, me... at
1: least half the time I'm
0: playing other people's music, if that's what you're asking me. Mm-hmm. What I mean is is stylistically, is what Joe Morris or, might call free improvisation or what uh, I might, or free no, music. No, he doesn't
1: might call it. He calls it free music. Free music. And if you ask Joe, although I don't want to put words in Joe's mouth, but you've talked to Joe. Joe, once when somebody asked him, once he might change the definition, what free music meant was he says, well, I'm free to do whatever I choose to do. Although the caveat to that would be, I mean, in the case of my colleague Joe, you're talking about somebody with such a deep bench when it comes to knowledge and experience and language that he's almost unmatched Sure. in how abundant his imagination is and his ability to change voice, change technique, and do everything. He's unlike almost anybody that I know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. so let me ask you this, and it may be, it may be a
0: non-issue. I take it to be a non-issue most of the time, but going forward, because I think I'd be interested in your in your view on this. So, if we have, let's say, the tradition of, let's say, the jazz tradition, or the tradition of so-called jazz tradition, yeah, well, whatever it might be, let's say the let's say the African American musical tradition, or
1: well, I was trained that it was called black music if you were going to use those kind of labels. That's sure. what Bill called it. That's what Ellington called it.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, does that? Do you I'm
1: just quibbling with semantics with you, Sure. that's
0: uh, man, I gotta, they,
1: It does mean something. I
0: so. got a degree in philosophy if you want to go. We can go full, We can quibble in semantics I'm in trouble all day, now. man. <laughs> we can have some fun. So, so d- let me stop
1: interrupting you. Should, Ask the question. Well,
0: then. so my question is then, is it is there a discrepancy stylistically between Ellington and what you might play with, let's say, a performance with Joe Morris and Ben Stapp or any number of people, a, a more freely improvised thing. Is there a is there a term for that? Is there even an, a reason to distinguish genres, or how do you think about it?
1: There was this catchphrase in the '80s when I lived in New York that was bandied about by a lot of people, which was "in the tradition," and what it meant was that people were pay, playing standards in metrical time and functional harmony. Mm-hmm. But there was also an implication that you were either in the tradition or you weren't in the tradition. And if you weren't in the tradition, then you weren't hip or your thing wasn't happening, right? I think the music is incredibly wide, reflective of where the music came from, where, what the origin point of the music was, the time that it was made, over time. And so I think that, I like to think that it resists easy classification, which is kind of opposite of the rubric of of what has become the jazz education engine now, Mm -hmm. which sometimes traffics in in orthodoxy and, and limits the scope of the music. I think the music essentially There's so many different, I mean, we could list 10 different people and it would be their sound worlds and conception would be so different. The minute we would hear them either as an instrumentalist or as a writer, you and I would know right away, okay, well, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. And by the way, when you asked about listening to recordings, that's another thing we're looking for. That first note of Marvin Gaye, that first note of Miles Davis, the first note of Wayne Shorter, the first passage of Duke Ellington, you knew immediately whose music that was. So we're looking for that. Sure. We're hoping for that—not just a sound of surprise, but something that signals an individual voice Mm -hmm. that's offering something new. Understanding that everything that we call new is some sort of a reconfiguration or retwisting or reimagination of all the same set of elements that everybody's using. Sure, you know, it's like an art definition. How can you do something new when everything's been done? And yet people do occasionally do something new mm-hmm. sure i'm rambling again i'm manic digressive and i'm getting off topic
0: <laughs> no i think we're getting but I, someplace I, I but I, I, I
1: don't i don't think this i don't think there's a distinction between the two i don't think it's a horse race i don't think it's a competition and i don't think it's about one being different or better than the other well different yes they can be different mm-hmm. but they're not unrelated sure yeah but is there
0: a, is there a use in the categorization of let's say free improvisation or free music or? I hate the phrase free improvisation. Sure. Okay. So it's usually but, said.
1: But what would free you... improv? Anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't. I've never. I've never said that in <laughs> my know, life. I right? know. I
1: know. But that's the next but, part of it. Okay.
0: So, but what would you call it? Or is there something you would call it? Or how do you think about it? And it may not be important. You may say. I don't think about it at all. It's the same exact
1: thing as... when I, I, I know the people that I, that I do that work, when I'm doing the, that work with the right people, are generating form in the moment. I know that they're all structuralists. I know that they all understand... You know, improvisation is is, is... is a higher order, more rapid form of thinking. It's problem solving. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing that work collectively with a set of people whose literacy is deep, whether the subject is, is is form, vertical form, horizontal form, rhythm, language, maybe they're pan-stylistic, maybe they're aware of all these different periods, then if we were gonna use the word free and another word afterwards, an adjective and a noun, I would prefer something like free association mm-hmm. before I would improvisation in the sense that like having a conversation with another person. It's a better metaphor metaphor or analogy for what we're talking about. It's in a way a better definition. So the conversation is as interesting as the two people having it, what they know, how well they listen to each other, and then how well they might move together. And I, and I think the music is analogous to that. I think where we get into trouble And it may be related to the idea that, that somehow the music business has something to do with this. Mm-hmm. Or that it might be profitable to certain people. There's a start, desire to label things, and everything has to fit in this box or that box. And the most interesting thing for most of us, doesn't neatly fit in any of the damn boxes. Mm-hmm. Sure. It doesn't mean that the boxes don't exist. And oftentimes they're a convention, and you might even agree that they're a convenience because they allow us to talk about certain things mm-hmm. but in my experience a lot of that stuff has been more limiting than it has been liberating sure. and so why would i want to be involved with anything that limits my choices or freedom of movement when i can offer something that's liberating mm-hmm. and i'm not saying and this is a problem i have with the use of the word free because oftentimes when it's used by certain people it definitely you could definitely not say that there's a rigor to their practice. You mm-hmm. could definitely not say that they're thinking about discipline when they use the word free. Sure. And it might sound corny to say it, but there's that catchphrase that people would like to quote that Sun Ra said, saying, There's no freedom without discipline. We won't get into defining Sun Ra. I don't think we could. But You know, I know for myself as an improviser, I'm interested in language, sets of language, in the building blocks of language, understood in the way that works best for me, personally, Mm -hmm. and in the way that I can use it if I'm called as a sideman to work with other people, or if I'm trying to construct my own situation and my own music. Sure.
0: So let me ask you this real quick. Yeah. A lot of people are going to understand the way that people develop a vocabulary or language within, let's say, a bebop or a post-bebop or a a very, uh, maybe, defined harmonic setting. How do you think, in preparation for your performances, either of your music or other people's music, of developing a language or a vocabulary? How do you think about language or vocabulary in in your own context?
1: Well, if we say in my own context, then I can do whatever I want to do. If, if it's to fit into something else, then that's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. I think when you say bebop, you want to remember that when that music was being made by the people that were making it, they were developing the music, that mm-hmm. it was a new music, um, that it had influences from a range of places, but that it was in motion and it was also very reflective of the time that, that the artists who made it lived in. And some would argue that it's a great way to understand form to go back and study it. Some would argue that it's a gateway and that without studying it, you can't move forward. I'm not having that debate. Okay. Plenty of other people have had it. <laughs> it's really uninteresting. Sure. You know, I think you can choose, any of those things are just a study. There's something you might study. It is a timepiece. I might get in trouble by saying it's not a living form. Although there are people that are doing music now that are using that language in those form and those conventions,
2: mm-hmm.
1: sure. I'm not really. I've never been interested in doing that, and, and really, if you look back at anything that I've done, you won't see me doing any of it mm-hmm. for a range of different reasons. It's not how I was trained. I was lucky when I was extremely young to be around people like Bill Dixon. I mean, early in my twenties, and I spent the '70s immersed in his sound world and how he was doing it. And if I were, if I understood anything that came before him, it was working my way backwards from that. And there are good things and bad things about that. Mm -hmm. But he often said that the music that he was engaged in wasn't predicated on fluency in in bebop. Sure. That there wasn't a gateway situation where you must do these two or three things. And most of the people that I would run into at the time that would say that were trying to hold you back Mm -hmm. from developing or trying to tell you that you weren't into any shit because you hadn't done X, Y, and Z. Sure. So as Bill would say, fuck those people. (laughs) That's what my teacher said, and I try to listen to my teacher. Sure. He was right. You know, and there were certain people that were using race the same way. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too far into that but, sure. it, but, but the idea that if you're not this then you're not happening mm-hmm. if you don't know this then you're not happening the teachers that i had would give you as much as you were able to embrace and work on and if you came back after they told you something and it was clear that you had been working on it they'd tell you something else and with somebody like bill in terms of being a student with a teacher, I got spoiled because he didn't hold back anything. Mm -hmm. There wasn't some secret shit that he wasn't gonna show you. If you were ready to learn something, he would show you. And as far as you wanted to go, he would do it. And that's not often the case. Sure, yeah. I think, and I don't wanna speak broadly about who's teaching in the system because I don't really know. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what, if I was in my 20s, I'd go study with Joe Morris. Mm -hmm. Look at his book. Look at how he teaches at NEC. There's nobody that's opened up the music of Cecil Taylor, Ornette Coleman, and arguably John Coltrane, and how they did their work in an ensemble setting and with language in a way that students can quickly pick up and immediately use rather than waiting five years to try to do something. Mm -hmm. Immediately take them as ways of, of... Moving, ways of, of developing and, and articulating language, and ways of being together with other players, because that's what those systems are. Rules of engagement, I guess, would sure. be a good way to describe it, right? Mm-hmm. He's a great teacher for that. He sure is. I'm biased, you know. <laughs> but it's true. It yeah. really is true. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is to look at the people that have studied with him and what they do. Sure. Mm-hmm. So. When did you start working with Bill Dixon? Well, I first met him kind of by accident in the fall of um, 1973 when I was 18 years old. At that time, I was a student at Roland School of Design. I was going to study printmaking. Okay. It's also where someone introduced me to improvisation, but that's another story. And we were hitchhiking up to see my grandparents who lived in Vermont. We stopped at Bennington College because the guy I was hitchhiking with who made instruments out of clay, knew somebody at Bennington, and I walked into Bill's studio and talked to him. But then, a couple years later, I was living in Philadelphia, and the people that I was living with were very um, enamored with Bil- Milford Graves. Mm-hmm. And so they would hitchhike back and forth from Philadelphia to Bennington to spend time with Milford, or and everything else that was happening around there. Um, so I started going with them. That's where I ran into Bill. So I would say 1976, so twenty at age 20, 21, something like that. And I knew him from then until he died. I mean, there were times when we didn't talk to each other and times when we talked to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to work with him on the last several projects that he did. I also sit as an advisor for the living trust that we set up with Bill before he passed away to... Um, Stewart and Shepard his, his papers, his legacy, and his materials. Mm-hmm. So
0: i knew him, knew him a long time. So did you, you studied at Bennington while he was there in his
1: program? I did, although initially I was at Bennington, and you could do this during the 70s, and people did it with Cecil when he was at Yellow Springs and also in Glass, Glassboro. There was a set of people who would go where these people were that were teaching, Cecil or Bill, and they would hang out. Mm-hmm. So I was hanging out, but I wasn't enrolled. Okay. I was just up there. Sure. I moved up there to be in all his ensembles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I wasn't a paid student. Okay. But I, you could go but in and then do I, the ensembles. You could. And That's but, but was it was saying. the '70s, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling. It was a different time. Yeah. Sure. Obviously. Um, And then I realized I was doing everything that a matriculating student was doing, but not getting any credit and not getting a degree. And so I applied. I didn't immediately get the answer I wanted, but pretty quickly I did. And got into the school, and then I finished my bachelor's degree as a student at the school. Okay. And at the time that I started, the black music division, there were two music divisions. There was the music division and the black music division. And there's a whole story behind that. Um, Partly driven by student organizing and the desire to have something that was freestanding and recognized. Bill went along with that structure, but didn't award degrees in black music because he didn't feel like his division was well resourced enough Hmm. or had enough faculty to do the depth and range and sequence of curriculum that he knew he would want to do if it was a full division. So it was a full division with a difficult relationship with the college, which didn't last forever. These things were in alignment long enough for me to participate in them. But when I arrived at that school and there were one or two other students at the same time, remember, Bennington College wasn't like going to a conservatory. You could have people that they were enrolled in music there that never could have gotten into Juilliard or Manhattan School of Music or, or a range of other places. They just couldn't have cut it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the skill levels of students that he had to work with were all over the place. There were remarkable people and there were people that were less remarkable with a lot of, lot of heart, let's put it that way, right? Sure. But I had had a certain amount of training and it had a certain amount of ability when I came up there. So by the time I was getting ready to do my bachelor's uh, degree he arranged for first me and then I believe two other people that season to get B.A.s in black music, which were the first B.A.s that were awarded Oh wow! for a very limited time. Mm-hmm. And at the ninth hour, a very specific dean, whose name I won't call, who was known for doing things like this, tried to block the awarding of the degree. Um, in the end, we got it through. I did a senior recital, you know, and... Uh, didn't participate in graduation because Bill Dixon had agreed to go to Italy for the first time and go to Europe for the first time in years because of Giovanni Bonandrini and Note Records and a number of presenters around the Verona Jazz Festival who asked and asked and asked because he didn't say yes the first time, which is kind of a habit of his. Um, he came over there. So at 20-something, just graduating from college, I was touring with my professor. We made two landmark recordings, Bill Dixon in Italy, Volumes 1 and 2. We did a tour. Started in Verona and ended up in Milano uh, in the Solon studios and, and made some records. I met Andrew Hill through that tour, Alan Silva was the bass player, Freddie Waits was on drums, which is incredible. I mean, hanging out with Freddie Waits was like going to grad school. What a generous person. Hmm. So I was fortunate enough to have really good instruction as a student at the college. But also Bill, on a regular basis, with unlimited resources he had, brought all kinds of people to the school. Mm-hmm. So he brought uh, Alan Silva. He brought Alan Shorter. He, When he went away for a term, he had Jimmy Garrison t- subbing for him for a term. He had Jimmy Lyon subbing for him for a term. When I was there as a student and then later on we had James Newton up for a festival. We had him up for a week. We had David Ware up there. We had a lot of different people. Gene Lee. Gene um, Lee. I saw for the second time in my life when she came up there. Mm-hmm. So he brought He brought Freddie Waits up. He brought Stanton Davis. There's a li- I can't even do the whole list. Sure. But he brought master artists up and then kept them there for a week and integrated them with the ensembles, had them do master classes. I mean, he ran a hell of a department. Mm. A hell of a department. That's amazing. Which is why I, I lately have thought that I need to go down... Dig into the archives at NYU because he recorded every class he taught. And I'm, it's hard to explain to other people how deep he was pedagogically Mm -hmm. if you weren't there. Sure. He didn't leave behind written books of that stuff. Uh huh. But he taught the shit out of the music, man. (laughs) I mean, the history, the theory, all kinds of things. And so, like his intro to black music courses. I mean, really, I should just transcribe that and make it a book and put it out because mm-hmm. it would really rock some people's world, probably. Sure. Um, I'd read it. For sure. I think a lot of people <laughs> would read it. Um, anyway, again, another rambling answer. No, but...
0: So, but, but, so I wonder if the, this is probably... This might be challenging because of the amount of time you spent either hanging out or in school or traveling with them, but what's an example of... Um, let's say, either a lesson that you learned from him early on or a, maybe a, not an, ass, I don't want to say assignment because that may be too kind of mundane, but a the way The best way of, to
1: explain the relationship with him was he wasn't like other people that I had trumpet lessons with. With Bill, it was somebody where I was so thirsty for what it is that he did. His music, the way he walked down the hall, the way he dressed, the way he talked, I wanted to be Bill Dixon at that age, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to be able to do whatever he did. I imitated it and tried like crazy to steal it. He might teach me, but you know there's a real question about how you teach art. Sure. We have all this technique and we have all these classes and we can talk about bebop language and everything, but how do you, how can you take a young person And make it possible for them to be an artist, right? Because you you can't overtly teach what it takes to be an artist. I think what you can do is you can put somebody who's studying in proximity to somebody who's an artist. And with Bill, he worked in front of us. Mm -hmm. I had trumpet lessons, and I can talk to you about exercises and trumpet technique. But the deep thing with Bill was... He shared his process with us. He didn't hide it from his students. He left his house. He was working on his own music in his studio. He was in that music building before any of us were out of bed. And after we were out at night at all party, he was still working on his shit. Sure. So he set this example for rigor, mm-hmm. for discipline, for a voracious appetite for all kinds of culture and stuff and music. And, and and seriousness of intent so i think the lesson with somebody like bill was every fucking thing he did was the lesson sure <laughs> no really <laughs> everything he did if if you had eyes for that because mm-hmm. not it i mean look for me at least coming up in the early 70s playing my instrument who the hell was i gonna study with Right now, you could, if you were a young trumpet player, you could think of a list of a whole bunch of people that are actively playing, oh, I should go take a lesson with so-and-so. Man, who could you have gone study with? Don Cherry? You weren't going to be taking lessons from Don Cherry. Lester Boy? Nobody really knew about Lester at that point. He mm-hmm. was just beginning to rise. Right? Sure. I finally, the person that I dug the most was Roswell Rudd, so I took six months arranging to take a lesson with Roswell Rudd. I knew somebody... That knew him elliptically and whatever and so so i I came where was i living at the time i don't even remember oh in providence rhode island Mm -hmm. so i came down his wife at the time had this club i think on canal street was a downstairs space i come in there and and ross was playing and he's got a band with hot o'brien on piano sheila jordan singing beaver harris playing drums and cameron brown on bass they were playing all that material from Flexible Flyer, those songs that Roswell liked. Mm-hmm. So I sat there, and I watched, and I sat in the booth, and Roswell comes over, and he sits down, and he says, uh, Well, you know, I, I, I thought a lot about, you know, before before we met, um, what I should teach you, and I, and I began to realize after a while. He said, Look, as a player, I've developed these solutions and these ways of of, of playing my instrument that allow me to fit into a whole bunch of different situations. And it works. I have this thing that I do, and it works. And I could have lessons with you, and I could show you how I developed all that stuff and what my thing is, but it's my thing, and I'm not really sure that I should be teaching you my thing. I think you should have your thing. And that it would be unfair to you to teach you my thing as if it was the thing. I'm paraphrasing. Sure. But that's what he yeah, was yeah. saying to me. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that he said, which I didn't exactly listen to, although I ended up knowing him later on, was he said, but if I was your age, I'd be camped out on George Russell's doorstep. Sure. I met George later, and I worked with him at the Vanguard through Stan Davis. Mm-hmm. That would have been difficult, I think. <laughs> <laughs> although, I mean, you know, Bill often talked about George Russell's music, and it was because... And Bill brought George Russell to Bennington. I met George Russell as a student of Bennington. So when I moved to New York in 82 and wasn't working that summer because I thought I'd be teaching in the fall and heard that George Russell was rehearsing for his third one-week run at the Vanguard over at the Air Studios where Threadgill and all those cats hung out, I went over and stood behind the trumpet section because Bill talked about doing that with Dizzy Gillespie's big band. I used to go to the rehearsals and I stood there and I read the parts over their shoulders. So I was acting out wow. this stuff that my teacher told me. Sure. But with George Russell. Yeah. Of course the thing was all of those guys wanted to sub out of the rehearsals as fast as they could. <laughs> Why is that? Well, it's New York. You live in New York. Yeah, you could sure. probably answer that question. Bill would talk about this all these New York cats, man. You know. And it was only three a uh, three trumpet books, so there was like a lead trumpet, a second trumpet, And a third trumpet. So lead trumpet was Ron Tooley, who also did a lot of Broadway work. Played Mm -hmm. Colequios, beautiful horns. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Stanton Davis was second. Stanton, we could argue, was George Russell's Johnny Hodges. And you can go back through Stanton's literature and understand how important Stanton Davis is when you say the words George Russell. Mm -hmm. And then the third seat was Tom Harrell. Mm. Completely different. Sure. Mm -hmm. So Stanton would call me and say, can you Covered. So I would go in there and stumble my way through the book and try to, you know, read the book. And then when they went to Europe and argued through half the tour, I was just waiting for someone to break their leg so I could take the gig. Yeah. That never really happened. But then when they got back and were going into the Vanguard for a week after doing the tour in, in Europe, Stanton was already committed to do a, a Broadway show.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it overlapped with the first set. So he said, look, can you cover the first set for me? And so, you know, because I met Stanton through Bill, then in New York, he was one of these people that said, no, you're going to be working at the Vanguard. The fucking Village Vanguard, man. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And all I tried to do was to go in there, read the book, which I could do, and if I was called on a solo, like on Living Time or something, which Mm -hmm. is where Stanton had very few solos, but there were certain things he did, I tried to play like Stanton. I didn't try to play like me. What the fuck was I doing at that time anyway? But I tried to play like Stan. Interesting. And learn from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a colorful experience. Sure. You know, um, which I'll always be grateful for. You know, when you're a college student, and maybe it's this way now, people come and visit your programs and they're always saying, man, when you come to New York, call me up, man. Look me up, man. You know? And almost none of them mean that. Sure. You never know. But. Well, Stanton meant it. Uh-huh. And I did tons of things with Stanton. That's, that was my entree to the Latin scene. And any salsa work I did came through Stanton, really. Um, either because he would call me as a sub or turn me on as something. Although the work in salsa bands at that time, that thing was shredded. I mean, there just wasn't any work, really.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I did more work with, like, Haitian bands playing compa than I ever did with salsa, you know. Sure you get done with a gig in the Bronx and you'd have 75 bucks in in $1 bills from the admission. So you have this sucker wad in your pocket and you're taking like the Broadway line home wondering if someone's going to roll you before you (laughs) get to
2: the apartment.
1: I mean, and I think at that time, you know, living in New York, I tried to play every kind of music and I tried to imagine that I could do every different thing. And I think I did try to do it for a while and kind of did it, but... I don't think I really knew who I was as an improviser because I was so involved in doing other people's music, Mm -hmm. which could have been my fascination or also me avoiding making those choices. Who knows? you have to ask my therapist, you know?
0: (laughs) Interesting. Well, I was gonna ask you if you felt like there was any limitation to to focusing on, or to trying to do everything as opposed to focusing on one thing. I know in, in New York now, so I'm from Boston where in my experience it, there's a lot of overlap between people who play all kinds of different styles of music. Yeah, but Boston is so much hipper than New
1: York. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, come on. Now. I mean, no, I'll go with you, man. I'm going to get no, in trouble. No, there's no funding
1: I'll... in Massachusetts for the arts uh-huh. or in Boston, and there are not enough places to work or support for artists, but there are some of the most interesting non-genre impaired mm-hmm. jazz cats. You could ever imagine. They could cross all kinds of borders. Yeah. Look at Carl Atkins when he was there. Look at Bill Lowe. Look at all those different people. And even the younger people that came out of there. Taylor when he was up there. All that kind of stuff. There was this fertile Leonard Brown. The the Coltrane Festival. All that stuff. You know Mm -hmm. I mean? Uh, I agree with you. I think a lot of people go there for school and they
0: stay in school. They stay with their school people. They don't end up hanging out in the scene and you don't
1: realize what... What kind of a now, world there is? Like know. Philly, there aren't enough or hardly any places to play. Right, much less get paid, and they keep disappearing. Oh, all the time. Although we're talking about outpost 186 they had that coming. But um, is that gone now? It is because the landlord realized they were using it as a performance space, <laughs> and it wasn't. An <laughs> I didn't or somebody's, I didn't or somebody's know. mother died. Okay. Whoever's listening to this, I'm probably misquoting the situation. That's funny. Send though. me but I'm email. sorry to hear that because that place is cool. But it was, but well, I think it's kind of you know. Having you these know. places where you can work on the music, I mean, look, I want to make sure before we get out of this interview that I also tell you there's a couple things that are important to me. I'm also an organizer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm a social worker, but I mean. The other lesson we learned from Bill Dixon was, and Bill would use his phrase, you have to have a situation, meaning look at his work organizing in the 60s with the Jazz Composers Guild, the October Revolution. And so I didn't just cut my teeth on how to play the trumpet or how to play in these orchestral situations. I was very interested in how he made things happen. And he talked plenty about it. And there was plenty of things you could look at So, when I came to New York, if I didn't have gigs, I got involved in either co-ops or I started producing my own festivals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're in New York. I mean, there's a million musicians and proportionally not enough places to play either. And at least traditionally, the best work and the best money often went to people who come in from out of town, take the money and leave, Mm -hmm. like a lot of large metro areas. So arguably, New York City is just another local scene when it comes to people who live there over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you're going to have anything happen, look at the people that are interesting, that are not only getting their work done, but getting creating a lot of work for other people. Look at Andrew Drury. Look at Soup and Sound and the nonprofit that he created and all the concerts he's presented. He doesn't have to do any of that shit. He could just play his own music and put his own records out. Mm-hmm. But that's an interesting way of working, right? That's what Bill meant by a situation. He meant a critical mass of other people who are creating that you're in the middle of, a milieu, a situation, right? Sure. And even the last time we drove to Vermont with him, a week before he died, two weeks before he died, we passed this big old country house in the woods in Vermont, and he said, you know, I still think that really the most interesting thing you can do is to buy a big house like that, and fill it full of interesting people who are all doing their work. Have some meals together. Every once in a while, invite people in to see what you're doing. He had a dream about that for years. And so that was, you know, you asked me about the lesson again. Mm-hmm. Sure. That was the thing that if you had the eyes and, and the inclination you picked up, I certainly picked it up. So when you see me organizing with Joe for six years here and creating local work, because I do think you need to create work where you live. Mm-hmm. But that work should also draw people in from other places and create allegiances that link cities and link states and link, th- I mean, ideally, if enough musicians could actually really work together, we wouldn't have to worry about touring because we'd have a cooperative arrangement. Mm-hmm. But organizing, we use the word jazz, jazz musicians is like organizing herding cats, man. <laughs> and in yep. a way, the cats, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. Yeah it
0: sure is and it's not well, I don't
1: mean to be disparaging I don't mean to sound like I'm a crank sitting up here in the woods but you know, there was a maxim when I when I when I grew up in the 60s you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem there's a lot of people that like to spend a lot of time complaining about things in this music but there's a much smaller number of people who stop complaining roll up their sleeves and make some shit happen those are the people I want to know sure. those are the records I want to buy those are the people I don't want to have conversations with okay great Sure. something else is going on you're not just playing a horn and giving a gig and trying to knock me off the bandstand you're doing something else no one told you you had to do it mm-hmm. but you found it interesting okay that's interesting to me yeah sure and creating a world
0: around the art unto itself whatever that is
1: having a community and, and what a community really means is a responsible is a responsible is a responsibility of every community constituent member of the community we all have a role to play I'm not sure we're all aware that we're in the community and that we need to reach out and help other people without thinking first about what we're going to get from doing it and again I don't want to oversimplify and label what other people are doing I know I'm speaking in broad terms but I mean, in the end, a lot of things fall away over time, right? And so the thing that gets left after a while are authentic relationships with other people. And arguably, it's that shared time where the magic comes. We go back to those early questions where you talked about free music. And I said to you, it's important who you work with. But imagine that this a person or people you work with and you work with them once. This is in free music, right? And you work with them again then you work with them again. Still no rules before you get on the bandstand, no pre-arrangements, no plan A, no plan B, but there's a really important function that memory plays in the music. And no matter what we're talking about, you talk about learning b-bobby terminal, all these things, but in this music we're talking about the discipline is the part that I love the most is the shared music Carried across different one-on-one, one-on-two, two-on-three, five-on-five groups of people where I see you again, like I see you again and we start talking. I see you again and we start playing. That shared experience we have informs the music, right? Mm-hmm. So the literacy, the music and stuff might come through a methodology, might come from a language, might come from a structural rules, but might also come from shared experience, right? So when you see, we all know this in the band, when you see a working band, which we don't see that much anymore, Sure, some other shit is happening, right? Yeah, Because they're doing this thing over and over. So something, it moves to another level. I think all of us would like to have that. I wanna be surprised, but I also want that intimacy Mm -hmm. and that trust relationship with other people. When you're a good band leader, you develop that in an ensemble. When you're a good orchestra leader, you develop that sense of ensemble. It's part of how you make the music work arguably more important than the written part and you're conducting and all your systems and all your labels is how you bring people together and get them to move together mm. you look at bill's work right so when he recorded for rca in the early 60s for intents and purposes i've seen the parts and a lot of that stuff was written out i mean a lot of it was written out it may not sound like that when you hear it but when we went down taylor and i set up a residency for him at firehouse 12 where we did this box on fire s12 tapestries for small orchestra and i interviewed him after that and i said listen we went in there and we did like hours and hours of music you gave us one sheet of paper with five lines on it that was it that was the only written thing you gave us and you you built all this music some of it he did in the studio he sat there and said okay you take this line you take that line, you took this line he might extend it he might voice it he literally almost did a workshop by developing the work in front of us at the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a lot of different reasons for doing that way, which is almost another conversation. And I'm gonna lose my thread of thought. But it's kind of like this is why Ellington's work was so powerful. We said earlier sure. you could go to Yale and get the stuff out and not get it. It wasn't just the relation the people, it was the relationship. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think about that all the time. I use that as an example, too. Shit, look at that, Duke and Harry Carney. Yeah. The first time he took him on the road, he had to ask his mother for permission because he was underage. <laughs> and, and and these guys knew each other their entire life. And he wrote for them and they played. Sure. We're not going to get that. Well, it's tricky. Yeah. Yes, but we all have people we're tight with. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you only work with people you're tight with and that you should never work with people you don't know. I, again, I like to be surprised. hmm but we're all looking for those relationships that, that serve as a ground that allow us to then elevate the music more powerfully. Because the work, the music itself is difficult. It's pleasurable, but when you're doing it, there's a rigor, there's a discipline. It, like as Bill would say, it kicks your ass, right? Sure. That's the joy of it, right? Yeah. It kicks your ass. It's the joy of the trumpet. It definitely kicks your ass. <laughs> sure does. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you have this thing undergirding it, which is the trust relationship with the people you're working with, it makes, you possible to take, makes it possible for you to take more risks because again, you're in that trust relationship. Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: maybe the band leader creates that with the ensemble, right? Or maybe there's something about how you organize the music that does that. Bill, when I asked him why he was using so much less written music, he said, look, at the time I did that work in the early 60s, the only way I knew to make the musicians do what I wanted them to do was to write it all down. It was the only way that I knew," he said. "If I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, I would have written down a lot less stuff."
0: And does that have to do with the the, the trust in the, the musicians have in him, or his relationship with the group, or with the fact that he just knew? No, how his to ability that? to
1: command your attention and control. Mm-hmm. Because the notation with him, as he would say, and he's referring to Miles Davis, would be how you, if you're a band leader and everybody knows that you're the leader. It's how you walk in the room. You're immediately telling the band, signaling the band something if you're aware of it. Everything that you do, if you're a leader, has significance for the people that are following you. The question is whether you're aware of it as a leader and whether you're going to use that as a tool in your toolkit to direct the ensemble. Hmm. That's fascinating. No, you could see Miles in the early 70s and he wouldn't say anything to anybody and they'd turn on a dime. hmm. Sure. So. Although, then people are going to take that and pick it apart and talk about his sound cues and how he directed the music. There's been a lot written about how that worked. But the thing is, there's a psychology to it, too, sure. right? But even then, none of that would work if they hadn't played a
0: million gigs together, or if, if they didn't know the music. Or yeah, know but his...
1: then here's the other uh, problem, and, Bill, and this is maybe why Bill did that music the way he did at Firehouse. I mean, maybe. When musicians have a lot of time with the parts and have a lot of the times and get comfortable, they also get a little cute sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Bill would say, you're playing that cute shit. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Bill, like a, guy, a lot of guys that came out of the bebop era, would find some of the way to reintroduce tension in the room to get you up off your ass and out of your complacency as a musician. So when we're touring Italy, by the time we get to Milano, People are getting comfortable with the parts. They're not, you know, on the tips of their toes paying attention. So he comes into the recording studio with his dark glasses going. So was he in a bad mood? Or was he making sure that we weren't being complacent? We may never know. But it had that function. Oh, shit. That's wild. How do you get the attention? How do you... command the attention of the people that are working with you. Mm -hmm. Is it because the musicians are doing the right thing or do you have to make them do the right thing? So again, what is notation? Again, if the the thing is about not so much form but getting people to move together and to function as an ensemble, then what does control look like? And what does freedom look like, right? Again, this word that I said I didn't want to use Freedom is best understood when it's paired with something else which would be maybe the opposite of it. So what's control and where does freedom lie? Mm -hmm. Freedom is best understood in relationship to to rules and discipline. Freedom is something that you are allowed to take and to exercise if you're literate. You could talk about our political system and your rights as a citizen and argue that you would be more free if you understood your own history and your own power and your own agency as an individual, what the power of your vote means, you could say the same thing about the music.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So maybe there's work that we all have to do if we wanna have what we like to call freedom. The freedom may arrive through the depth of our experience and our literacy and our fluency. One of my favorite teachers in social work school wrote a book called The Life Model. What a great title, the great album title. Yeah. He also said within the first 20 pages, the social workers have to be able to be allowed to and be able to improvise. So you know I was in love with him, right? Sure. But one of his catchphrases was, your authority comes from your capacity. Think about that. Your authority as an improviser, as a band leader, as a composer, your authority comes from your capacity. How much do you know? Can you deploy what you know? Have you got to get analytical skill? How literate are you in a range of different things? And then can you take all that stuff that you know and make something happen, right? So, yes, we could use freedom, but only if it connects with all the things that you have to do to maybe become truly free mm-hmm. if there is such a thing. Sure. Freedom doesn't mean doing whatever the fuck you want to do if you don't know how to, know how to do shit. Mm-hmm it it means being free listen you want a definition of freedom listen to dexter gordon in the last five years of his life listen to that listen to manhattan serenade and that quartet with george cables and rufus reed and eddie gladden and listen to dexter gordon play body and soul someone who played standards all of his life and tell me he's not playing free tell me he's not playing free that's a definition of freedom Sure. So how free can you be in any different environment, in any different form? A great example of a person who talks about that in his teaching is Kenny Werner. Mm -hmm. You ever watch him talk about free association and the way he moves through things? He's a good modern teacher that's talking about that and revealing that to other people. So there's a lot of confusion about the word, about a lot of words in general, and certainly in our music, what it means to be free what it takes to be able to try to be free or to be successfully free. And freedom within what context, because there's always a context. Right? I mean, I think I may be more clearly answering your question now than I was a half an hour ago. Sometimes that's how it goes. We finally find our our way to get there, right? Exactly, sure. Yeah, yeah. Nothing comes from nothing, man, I think. Sure. And that's why we all talk to each other, and that's why we study, and Mm -hmm. that's why we research, because we want to know these things, because somewhere in the middle of knowing these things, boop, you get an idea. Mm -hmm. Boop, you find you can move in a certain kind of way. You didn't plan it, it just opens up and makes itself available, because you're moving through all this other stuff. Sure. It creates the ground for, for this surprise, for the arrival of this technique, or in the moment you're improvising, and because you practiced all this time, if you're in the moment, you don't have time to think about it in that sense. You are thinking, but it's a different level of thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the improvisation is, is the, the creation of form in real time, in a set of rules, or not in a set of rules, however you want to think about it, is a higher order thinking skill. Mm-hmm. I think it's a discipline. I think it's, a, it's very rigorous and I think you have to train for it to be able to be fortunate enough to find that place. Sure. And it's fragile because if you look at it, it's like deja vu, you touch it and the bubble pops. Mm -hmm. To find that place where you can lose yourself and move into the music completely, and the music then moves you.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Or moves through you, right? Sure. Because you're a good vessel, because you prepared the vessel. Mm -hmm. It's a good container, right? Sure. It's limber. These things move. You know, some of us believe that that, that, that what we create moves through us. <laughs> but it's not going to move through if, you, if you're not flexible, if you can't bend over and touch your toes, and if you can't lift this up, and if you can't hit a high C. You know, all these different things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Create the possibility for things to, for energy to flow through you, for, for these things to happen. Sure. The potential. Mm-hmm. The possibility. And then you put these things together, and maybe they align and maybe they don't. If we're lucky, right? hmm And that's the magic of it, is when it all comes together, and when it all... Well, you know, I love that phrase of Whitney Ballets when he was asked to define the music. He said, the sound of surprise. It's a wonderful definition. Yeah, that's great. I don't like a lot of definitions, and it's, it's difficult to even name what the music is, right? Who mm-hmm. no, would we'll just say, this music? Sure. This, and you knew right away, he was talking about it the way other people might say jazz. Yeah. Or bebop, whatever he was saying, in this music. And that was the label he used, this music, and all of us that were with him knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about the music Mm. and what was significant and what would last and what didn't last. And he had a definite sense of the weight of history, what was significant, what wasn't significant, and, and what at the time that he was working would be significant 20 years forward. And he was at a point in his life where he would pronounce on that stuff and probably be right if he was still around. Sure. So, again, you ask about the lesson. I was fortunate enough to be around somebody that we arguably might say was a master in what they were doing. And he was generous enough to reveal himself to all of us, far more than any job description would have ever told him as a professor to do. Mm -hmm. It's just the way that he believed. He couldn't really do it any other way, Sure, you might say. Uh Uh-huh. But that's something that you're going to get so much more out of that, of
0: seeing the, the art as a whole in that way than you would from learning whatever lick you're supposed to play over whatever chord or, some, or whatever the methodology might be.
1: Oh, and listen, as a trumpet player, whatever yeah. he showed me, I would go over and practice that shit because, remember, I was 20-something, my hormones were racing, and my testosterone, I'm going to come in there and try to kick his ass in the lesson and play his shit better than he could play it. Now, you know he must have enjoyed that. Sure. Yeah. That's a trip. That was what the the one-on-one lessons were like. It was like a boxing match match. <laughs> a hit boxing match. No, really. Sure. Because he set the bar and you were trying to emulate his sound and his approach, which he defied. So could you take the technique you were raised with, move it over to his area, pick up his shit and go a little higher? Or play the multiphonics with more intensity, or do something that surprised your teacher for a change. That was a good lesson, mm. right? Mm. Sure. And yeah, he gave us exercises. You could take an arranging class from him, and you know, arrange a Horace Silver piece. I took that, and I dropped out of the class because I wasn't ready for it. So he had a great sense of of, of the traditional. He talked to us about Ellington, he talked to us about Dizzy Gillespie, he talked to us about Miles, but he talked about it in a different sort of way that somehow connected it with the current moment, even if it wasn't from the current moment, that, that didn't make the music into a repertory situation or an antique, that somehow approached it as a vital sensibility that could inform you in the present moment. I can't even clearly tell you exactly how he did it, but that's what he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least for me and some of the other people I know that spent time with him, and he kind of infected all of us with that that virus or that passion, and the people that went deep with him are still carrying all that stuff, and you can see it, right? And I think that, I'm not saying there aren't any people you could study with that are like that, because there are. And they're teaching relationships in this music, partly because of how the music developed, And the later arrival of the more structured jazz education system where a lot of it could be called mentoring or one-on-one relationships and sometimes the people you study with it wasn't like you know signing up for a course or taking a lesson there's tons of stories like that and the people that really know things and are balanced in their life still today are often generous and will take their time to talk to somebody younger and tell somebody. They see somebody who's serious about the music, they may pull them to the side, and as Bill would say, indicate something to them, right? I think that's going on all around us all the time in the music, and that's the encouraging thing in the music. We don't often see it because we're looking at these college courses and these syllabus and, you know, and all these different things, and I'm not, I know I sound like I'm constantly dogging the college system and the education system, and in a way I am, But I'm sure there's some magical things going on in those contexts. I don't really know because I don't really travel that way. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I can run into somebody, and when I ask when they started playing and who influenced them and where they learned, you hear different stories from different people. There are a lot of different paths up the side of the Mm -hmm. mouth. I don't know. That's what I keep learning, man. I think the other thing that that, that I'm hungry for, and I would hope that a a lot of other people that I know are hungry for, is where is the music that's a living music? Where is the music that's a vital music? Where is the music that is, that's living, that's plastic, that's moving, right? Not fixed, not completely codified. Can we find things that are new? Can we find things that challenge us? Mm -hmm. And if we're gonna call it so-called jazz or black music or whatever, then you could ask the question whether you're a teacher or whether you're an improviser or a composer or somebody in the industry, what can we all do as a community to, to ensure that the art we're all practicing is a living art, that it has vitality, mm-hmm. and that it connects with people's lives outside of the music world? Sure. And what effect does our work have on the world that we live in? And I'm not just talking about topically, but like what effect does the music you have that you create have on other people? Mm-hmm. Sure. Should it have an effect on other people? Right. That's a whole other conversation. Right. Yeah how do you think about that personally? Well, I like intimacy in my work. I like working with a set of people in close proximity, but particularly from six years of working real artways, where we made a practice because we would set up the furniture for our concerts, right? We made sure the audience was like right there. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And initially we might have 20, 25 people. By the end, we might have a hundred people after six years, but and we had a rule, every time between the sets, we'd wait out on the audience and talk to the audience. So... We developed our audience by talking to our audience. You could call it audience education. I would prefer the word engagement. Sure. And the most interesting people that came to our concerts were the people that didn't know shit about the music we were playing. hmm And were often surprised and maybe shocked by it, because nothing in their experience prepared them for it. But they loved something about it, and they came back. Mm -hmm. And we engaged them when they came back, and we talked to them about the work. We still know a lot of those people. Sure. So I think... And I know it's not possible in a large concert hall with thousands of people, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have those environments, but because of the scale of the music for a lot of us, and what realistically how large the audiences were talking about, and the economy of all that stuff... We have an opportunity to have intimate relationships with a listening community.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I'd like to think that the listening community also understands that it has a responsibility just like we have a responsibility. I think the listeners are part of the creative community we're in. I think the so-called critics are part of it. The people that are writing about it, whether historically or, or critically, should also be an inter- integral part of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. There are all these different components that look at it from outside, that interact with it. And you know, you play. When you're playing with an audience and the audience is in the right place, we're held by the audience. Mm-hmm. Their listening and their attention holds us, and that makes something possible. Sure. When the house is right, when everybody's focused on you and on nothing else, something else becomes possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why wouldn't you want to find more environments like that, which might mean organizing doing your own concert series? Sure. And telling the audience they matter and that that's the function that they have. Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, look, I live up here. I, I, I go down to New York occasionally. I go down to New York mostly for orchestra stuff. Occasionally, I've done some small group things. But I like creating work where I live.:
2: mm-hmm.
1: but this, this
0: area also, between Hartford and New Haven, and, and uh, it seems like a place that's fertile with it, it with should creative be. music. I mean, there's a lot of great musicians who are living around here. There are a lot are of them, but I don't
1: think it's easy for anybody. And, and I, and I sure. think the most powerful times in Connecticut have been when musicians, when musicians organized. So if you look at what was happening in the 70s in New Haven, and then the axis between New Haven and Middletown, you're going to look at people like, who at that time were very young, like Anthony Davis and Jerry Hemingway, and Ray Anderson was coming up. Oliver Lake was around that, so was Leo Smith at the time. Leo's from Wadada now, He's from New Haven and has returned to New Haven. But they organized things. They had cooperatives, they had orchestras, they had their own record label, they did their own stuff. The people around Middletown clustered around the school. In the 70s, you had people like Clifford Thornton, Ken McIntyre different people like that. Later on, you had Ed Blackwell. You had you know these different people that are there. And the students gathered uh, that gathered around them, like we did in Vermont, created this cluster of people. Some resources were there. These different things line up and make it possible for you to do the work for a while. It usually doesn't last, but you're able to do it for a certain amount of time. Things go back out of alignment, and you have to find another arrangement to make the things happen. That's kind of a natural function, I think. Sure. The idea that success is going to be fixed is, is a real false
0: cognate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. So it's just a matter of the process of continuing to push forward and try to organize new things and create new create something from something I guess. But
1: Put together the music I think itself. you have to do new things and as I'm older I've also understood that you have to do new things if you want to have a brain because in order to ensure neuroplasticity the most guaranteed way to get new brain tissues to do is to be a beginner at something. Hmm. Now The best way to do is to learn an instrument. Well, we've already kind of got that covered, right? So maybe we have to go to grad school to learn Italian or whatever. But trying something, as beginners, we often don't choose to be, as adults, we don't choose to be beginners because we don't like to be out of control. Yes. And so we miss, we miss a lot. That frictive thing has a biological function which generates health. And you could say the mind is a bit like a muscle and you need to exercise. Mm -hmm. Sure so again where are the new challenges in the music sometimes they're in learning a new harmonic language or something technical on the instrument you and i do that all the of the time or playing with another musician and learning their system and trying to address it or meeting new people mm-hmm. and in finding something interesting that's going on sure I and mean, you know we just don't want to be bored you know? yeah right if it's possible yeah
0: but you got to have a it's, a little tr- it's tricky because you've got to keep your ego in check if you're used to being at a certain level in something. When you start over at anything, whatever it happens
1: to be, you're going to have to start point. over. the point. You have to surrender to being a, a beginner and let it kick your ass. Otherwise, you're not going to get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I went back to grad school in my early 60s. I'm 65 now. I went to grad school teen, uh, when I was 60. The last time I was in college full-time was when I was studying black music with Bill Dixon, and I went back and studied community organizing in the Yukon School of Social Work mm-hmm. and found out how many things I could do that I had no idea that I could do. Hmm. And trust me, that impacted my music. Everything, sure. everything you do, I mean, maybe it's a function of age, but I become less and less interested with things being columns or boxed. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in, in, in how everything can be integrated and I can be creative wherever I'm going and wherever whatever I'm doing is an expression of my art and my identity as a creative person. And that improvising is a way to enter and move through the world. It's a way to be. It's not just a technique that we learn. Oh, now I can improvise over these changes. Life is your changes, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. And yeah. so after a while, So I might say, you know, and maybe this is a hip rationale, I didn't practice enough today, but if you want to start understanding it this way, it's all just live problem solving. And so everything that I do could inform my playing. Yeah, my chops might be light if I don't do the physical part of maintaining that, Mm -hmm. but not my brain if I'm engaged. Sure. I don't know. (laughs) For me anyway, and I'm not pretending you don't need to practice because you definitely do. And I'm not pretending that, the, I won't say trumpet, I'll say cornet, because it's been me for years now, mm-hmm. Sure, doesn't kick your ass, because it does. You could practice eight hours a day and get up and pick up the horn, the instrument that we both play, and nothing will work. Sure. So there's a very specific psychology that you have to embrace if you're going to interact with this instrument that we've chosen to play. hundred percent, yeah.
0: Now, there's a, I wanted to ask you about this, because you, um, you posted a thing the other day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up, the Dizzy Gillespie quote. Which I love. Oh, a bit. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the horn kicking your ass. Yeah, some days, some days you get up and the ho- and you put the horn to your face. Uh, let me see. Some days you get up and you put the horn to your chops and it sounds pretty good and you win. Some days you try and nothing works and the horn wins. This goes on and on and then you die and the horn wins, <laughs> which I love, especially because Dizzy Gillespie was such a monster that the idea that you know it's a it's 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 um. I don't know, it's kind of great to know that he was
1: facing the same struggles that that we do. But imagine being Dizzy Gillespie. Okay, so let's let's take the topic of Dizzy. Look at what Dizzy did in the 40s and into the 50s. After Louis Armstrong, he was the first technical innovator on the instrument, Mm -hmm. never mind the musical significance of what he did, as a trumpet player. Speed and clarity of execution, across much wider register and range than anybody before him. Mm-hmm. He did things on the trumpet that no, that that before him were not possible, right? But how old was he? Twenty something, maybe thirty? I'd have to go look it up. Sure. So now, what does Dizzy Gillespie do for the rest of his life after being that? Sure. And that's when he made those remarks. He made them later on. How do you then? There's a whole thing in this music about being young. Unfortunately, our work has been male-dominated forever, so we could say it's a young man's thing. And that's a particular thing when you understand testosterone in developmental stages. But there's a whole batch of music that was done, thrown out of the universe, apprehended, and then people would copy and try to follow it for years that happened when the people that created were, like, under 30. Yeah, yeah. While. some of them died and we don't know what they would have done yet later on yeah we'll never know I was think about Booker Little is he 23 well, but we'll leave the ones out where they died what about the ones that didn't die right so how do you keep reinvigorating yourself as a creative person maybe you got lucky when you're young and you did something that was innovative but I mean really I mean if you're in a dizzy for me, I want to hear the, that quintet stuff of his with Kenny, Ware, uh, Kenny Barron and, and, and that band from around 63 to 60, whatever, because he didn't have to prove anything anymore. Mm-hmm. He didn't always have to play high. He didn't have to always play fast. He could do something else. There was a certain point where he got past that young man's music. His work became so much more interesting. Mm. And he constantly put himself around creative people, arrangers, composers, and tried to as a soloist, put himself in all different contexts and keep challenging himself. Sure. All right, let me ask you this. We might have to close with this because I
0: just felt a raindrop and we might get blasted.
1: It could rain. It's not supposed to rain too much. All right, pretty good. But we've talked a long time anyway.
0: <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground, but it's amazing. Uh, how do you how do you think about
1: continuing to challenge yourself or, or staying, I don't know what the best way to put it is. By staying alive. Uh, the first way that I can challenge myself is to eat well and try to be healthy. Mm-hmm. I need to exercise on my instrument but also in life, right? I need to move around. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what my brain thinks it can do because my body won't be able to fucking uh, execute it at all. Sure. Mm -hmm. So partly at age, I'm challenged with the thing that I never had, which is, you know, trying to exercise. Luckily, I have a great wife. I have a good life, and I'm getting better at it, right? How do you challenge yourself? I don't know. It's, it's it's almost a really a loaded question because it. I think the answer would, for me or for anybody, would also probably not be a universal answer in the mm-hmm. sense that we all have these different things. Sure. That's the beauty of it. That's I'm everybody. trying to understand myself as a human being all the time, mm-hmm. and stumbling my way towards some better understanding. And I do that a lot of different ways. Some of them are spiritual and some of them are not. Um, and then in the music, Like, you know, because you've looked at my stuff during COVID, when I can't go anywhere, I've been doing deep research on the instrument that I play. What's the history of the cornet? How was it developed? It's a fascinating thing in America. So for me, just finding new things to think about and do and play. And yeah, practicing. I think also over time, oftentimes we can work on something, and 20 years later, we don't remember what we were working on. And some of the stuff we were working on 20 years ago was some pretty hip shit, but we forgot it. Mm -hmm. So we have to, you know, I go back through notebooks. I try to find things and I talk to people. I talk to you. I mean, on my instrument, I talk to other players, I listen to other players and I try to find something that's interesting and try to be able to play. I mean, and this is the thing where we all have the blues right now. I think the way to change is to challenge yourself other than your individual practice is through work with others,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: frankly. Sure, I think the one way is to seek out these things that are difficult. As a player, can I put myself in the room with people who are better than I am? I've been trying to do that for years. I would rather play with people that scare the shit out of me and that are better than I am. Sure. Even now, if I ever get the opportunity to do that. I would rather play with people that don't make it easy for me or that make a challenge or that that force me to move in some way that I wouldn't normally choose to do. Then I think I have a feeling, because it's visceral, of being alive. Having, for me, and maybe I'm undisciplined, having the concerts and having the opportunity to share work is what keeps me returning to the practice room. So the hard thing to do during a pandemic, when that isn't there, you realize how important all that live stuff is because it feeds your practice room activity. And maybe that's because I'm not as disciplined as other people, right? Because some people are like automatons when it comes to practicing. And I really admire that in a way, but that's not how I grew up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started playing when I was eight. Within a year, they figured out I had talent and I was always first chair and I was always in honors orchestra and I always could play the shit out of the instrument. So I didn't learn anything about discipline. Sure. And as an adult, it's something that I continue to struggle with on a regular basis. And I'm better at it than I was a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But there's always something for me to be working on. The question is whether I want to pay attention to it. Sure. <laughs> am I running towards the, the the challenge or am I running away from it? How aware am I? How awake am I? I don't know. Those are very general answers, but I think that's the way it is. I think that... I'm interested in learning new things that I don't know. Uh, And for me, that would mean having to do with my instrument and how to play it. So the research of the instruments has to also do with the instrument as a piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And what are the effects of different metallurgy and different bell sizes and different sizes without getting nuts about that? I've been looking a lot at the tools and playing tools from different time periods not so much because I'm a collector, although I'm acting like that right now, but because I'm looking for another tool that I can pick up and use. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a multi-tool person because from the beginning, I was an orchestra person. Sure. So I've always been about doubling. I mean, really, the most challenging thing for me would be to take one gig, one horn, and two mutes, and, and make music every night for months and months and months without having something to double on and a lot of different options. That might be a good thing for me to do. hmm but you will show you'll show up to a
0: to a performance with a ton of with three different horns and a million different mutes. But you're always getting so many different colors out of the thing. It's amazing. I and mean, that's a, that's a, that seems to me to be a big part of your sound is well, the different colors. Well, sometimes I'm there and I have three horns, but I only play one the whole sure. night. Sure, but, but the options there. are there, right?
1: That's also theater. <laughs> no, it is.
0: Sure, okay. I mean,
1: if you're playing in an orchestra, it's the the mass of musicians and all their stuff is part of what. If you're there in the audience. You're fascinated by all that stuff we have. Mm-hmm, sure. I'm aware of that. Yeah. I'm not doing it to put on a show for the audience, but I'm very much aware of the fact that, that people see it and, and that they interact with it that way, even before the, the sound happens. Mm-hmm. If anything, I think it's a doubler. The problem is when you bring that much stuff and when you have somebody who's directing you, like you were at the gig with Ben Stapp, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of free choices, you create problems for yourself because you have too many choices sure and that can
0: be a real problem mhm yeah i've often I, I often say that limitation breeds creativity and sometimes whatever you have is what you know having to work with whatever it is that you have but at the same time it, it seems as though you want those creative options because if something comes to your head and you need a clay flower pot as a mute on hand
1: i learned about that from rex stewart if you ever meet boy me read boy meets horn because rex was a great writer as great as he was a player he was oh really wonderful writer. oh Oh, yeah there's a lot go look up his writing because it's not just his autobiography Uh uh-huh but he talked about the pre-standardized mute days and there was a guy in harlem that he talked about who played really really loud so he picked up these he had like a flower pot and he put it and so at one point when i was living in connecticut thinking I read this, it made an impression on me, I never liked the plunger. But something about the shape of this thing, it's about three, four inches long, terracotta clay, it's got a hole in the nose of it, so there's no intonation problem, mm-hmm. and I put surgical rubber around it, and I was able to do all that plunger stuff that everybody else does, it had more throat to it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So if you look at that, that, that plunger that Kenny Raskin is, uh, is uh, Rampton is crazy about, He's talking about a deeper plunger. There's a whole nerd thing about depth of plunger and throat sound and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For me, that was with a flower pot. Now, understand, I understood that it was theater. Before I had my derbies, I had a chamber pot, lined with court, because
2: <laughs> I liked fanning.
1: Uh-huh. And then I got into derbies, and now I have enough derbies to kit out a whole section. You know? Sure. Because when I finally get my band in the trumpet section, because with the, with the with the pocket brass band that I was recording, knuckleball, mm-hmm. three cornets, tuba, and drums, the plan where I might limp my way into doing larger ensemble would be double knuckleball. Mm-hmm. Who best to direct and write for than a bunch of brass players? So even if I'm raggy with, raggedy with orchestration, I should be able to do something with a room full of trumpet players, right? Sure. So double knuckleball might be Would it be ten trumpets? Uh, I don't know about that. I might bring in the trombones. That's a
0: lot of, yeah, that's a lot of, yeah, sure. And
1: do we keep one drummer or do we have two drummers? Hmm. So I... A person that I spend a lot of time with, who I'm inspired by how he organizes music and thinks, who's younger than I, is Ben Mm Stabb, who I'm very close to. And then at a point when I was talking about large ensemble stuff and pulling out some of Bill's music, he said, why are you talking about everybody else doing this? Why don't you just do it? Like, what are you afraid of? Why don't you stop helping everybody else get these things done and just do them yourself? That's the kind of person I need to be around. Sure. He's right. Have I done what he challenged me to do? No, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But he was right. What are you avoiding? Right? Just because you haven't done it before. And here we go with the neuroplasticity. So, oops. Sure. And then becoming a beginner in a public way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exposing yourself. Sure. Maybe I should do it because it does make me uncomfortable. So maybe that should be the indicator of what I should be doing. I think that's a great indicator, honestly. If I'm feeling like, oh, oh shit, then I should be going towards the oh shit movements and. I mean, when I was a student, it was easy because I had Bill Dixon, and I could be sure my ass would get kicked. Sure. Between the trumpet and my teacher, my ass would getting kicked all the damn time. But how do you find that later on? Who does that for you? Sure. How do you do it for yourself?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the question. That is the
0: question. That might be the process. That brings us full circle in there terms of the way, that, the way that Bill Dixon was teaching and the, the process of the organization and the people that you're going to be around.
1: They may all be part of the process. Listen, man, we brought him back from Victoria Bill. He was a week away from dying. He put everything that he had into that concert. He wasn't eating up there hardly at all. He was in terrible shape. We weren't sure if he'd even make it back. We got back, I walked him into the house and he wanted to, he told me to take my horn out and he wanted to show me something on the instrument. That's amazing. I mean, this cat went out with his boots on, man. Sure. So, this is another one of these examples where you just don't ever really stop. Yeah. You know, that's great. Uh, so, Keeps I, going. I had a really good example.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs>
1: and he dressed well, too.
0: Sure. Yeah, that counts for a lot. And head style. So. Yeah, great. All right. Well, Steven, I think that was, uh, that was great, man. We, we covered a lot of ground. I really yeah, appreciate I don't know it. how you're going to edit something <laughs> like that, man, but, <laughs> no. or who's going to listen to it, but there it that's is. That's amazing. Man. Yeah, amazing. Free range, man. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's what it's about. Well, this is a lot of fun. This is really interesting. I appreciate it. Wow, well that was a fascinating conversation, wasn't it, gang? Uh, big thanks to Stephen Haynes for inviting me over and talking to me about his world and music. Hopefully, I get a chance to. Man, I had so many more questions to ask him. I had, a, I, I did, I did a whole list of different things I'd like to ask him, and we got into so many different subjects that I didn't get a chance. So, hopefully, we'll get a chance once someday in the future to uh, get back together again, and I can, I can, we can cover even more ground. There's so much to talk about. Uh, now, there's not a lot of gigs coming up. No gigs coming up. So, if you want to, if you want to follow Stephen Haynes, see what he's doing next, uh, you can find him at shilkymusic.com slash stephen-haynes that's h-a-y-n-e-s uh, you can also find his recent recordings pomegranate and theories of colors as well as his work with tyshawn sorry uh, you can find some a lot of that music on firehouse12records.bandcamp.com uh, once again, it's Firehouse 12. You can find uh, Stevens' recordings there. If you search for him, you'll find him, but be sure to check out his recordings because it's really amazing music, and uh, if you get a chance to see him live, be sure to find him in uh, right around the New York, the Tri-State area in uh, New England. He's around all the time, playing in various different contexts. You can also find his own series um, at the Firehouse 12 and other places around the New Haven area. All right. Thanks again for listening, gang. And check us out next week. We've got an interview with Allegra Levy, whose new album, Lose My Number, the music of John McNeil, has just been released on Steeplechase Records. And uh, if you want to support the show, tell your friends. Follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash jazztopia podcast. You can find us on all the platforms. And we've got a new Patreon, so if you want to support the show, send us a little bread, we would really appreciate it. All right, thanks again. Everybody have a great week. See ya.